Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and really, really sad news. The great Melanie, Melanie Safka, died today at age 76. I spoke to her almost two years to the day for the Strange Brew and she covered her life and career, performance at Woodstock, those great songs that she wrote, including Brand New Key and Lay Down Candles in the Rain, songwriting gems and approach to life. I thought it'd be good to replay my extensive interview to Melanie, a huge loss. Beautiful people, you live in the same world as I do, but somehow I never noticed you before today. I'm ashamed to say. We share the same back door and it isn't right We never met before But then we may never meet again If I weren't afraid you'd laugh at me I would run and take all of your hands in
everybody and welcome to the strange brew podcast my name's jason barnard and that was a wonderful sounds of melanie there and beautiful people uh-huh. i've got a huge pleasure to welcome melanie here today legendary singer and songwriter famous for playing at woodstock and many hits and melanie's got um, a live stream concert on january the 30th so we'll be discussing that and a range of projects so he's more active than ever but first of all welcome melanie Thank you. Thank you. I'm listening to you say more active than ever. It's a different kind of activity. Yeah. I don't pack bags yes. anymore and I'm not um, flitting all over the place. It's a whole other universe. And then I'm trying to transition into it. It's been really difficult not performing in front of people. It's like uh, changing jobs after 50 years of doing it one way, you know. We, we opened up with one of your early tracks, uh, Beautiful People, but um, it was a hit in Holland and, and you were over here in London as well. And it seems like right. the, the Europeans sort of took you to heart in the in your early so, stages. Um, yeah, that was the, the first uh, hit I had. It was in the Netherlands and in the UK. It hadn't been a hit here. And it was, it was what they called a turntable hit where um, at that point, DJs were still free to play whatever they wanted. If they found a record on the street and played it, they could. You know, (laughs) a DJ in New York called Roscoe, and he was on a radio show called WNEW-FM, and he was like the coolest DJ, right? And he found this record. It It was released, but it was never, they never serviced. Um, the radio stations much, but somehow Roscoe got a hold of beautiful people. And um, again, the uh, record uh, company, CBS, it had just been taken over by Clive Davis and he just didn't get it. Not at all. So he, he kind of pulled back on the release of it, but Roscoe did get a copy and he played it. And from there, it kind of went, viral before there was such a thing as viral but the problem was nobody could buy the record because the the record company that pulled the record off the shelves under the leadership of clive davis buried it so they couldn't sell it and it was just being played but fortunately uh it, it got through the airwaves and they were able to sell it in europe so that is where i had my first hit and on the podcast today, I'd like to recognise how much you've influenced uh, such a wide range of artists. And we have an artist still recording today, Emiliana Torini, and I really love Harold. I don't know what you make about her version. It seems that she she took your version and kind of embellished it even further and made it soar. I love her. She's, to me, a great interpreter and a person that I'd be, I'm very proud of that she did my song. Um, there are, have been versions of my songs that have been done, and, and I'm not knocking the version of the recording, but they sort of just aped what I did exactly, you know, and then put it out, and it almost sounded like me, and it it was really exactly the same arrangement, my arrangement, and 
production and they put it out and it was a big hit. It was, look what they've done to my song, but I didn't knock it. I don't go against it. And I don't wish that they didn't put it out or anything, but it wasn't as rewarding as when someone like Emiliana did it and or Ray Charles did my song. You know, it's, it's, it's really great when an artist interprets a song, you know, not just goes out there to record a hit. Goodbye. 
one of the things that you are very synonymous with was playing Woodstock. I've heard that it was last minute decision to to get you on the bill there, and and your mum drove you to the to Woodstock. Right. You you weren't aware of the scale of it. Is is that all all true? Not at all. I, you're right. It's somewhat true. I was in the lineup right at the beginning um, because. My husband was friends with um, some of the people who were putting it together, and we neither one of us knew the scope of what it was going to be, but they all thought that I should be there. It was a real eclectic mix of artists and events, you know, and it was going to be an art festival. with going to be much more earthy, say, than Monterey one. But yes, I was going to do it, and I was in England during the whole. Um, you know, any if there was any press or anything, I didn't really get wind of it. And time, you know, I either had to leave what I was doing, which was recording an album. It was a soundtrack for. Uh, I think it was called All the Right Noises, and it was you know it was pretty big stuff and the Rolling Stones were in the recording studio next to me and. Never got to meet them there, <laughs> but the, there was things, you know, I was being pushed here and there to go and perform at the revolution. Or it was, my career was sort of taking off in England, but um, we were thinking, oh, I have to go and do this thing at Woodstock. So what do we do? And we really were debating whether I should go or not. So last minute, however, we decided we did. And Peter, my husband, who was the producer, stayed in the studio and finished up the recording. And I went off by myself and my mom picked me up at the airport and took me to Woodstock. And uh, we really had no idea what was happening. I seem to remember that when I got in customs, I said something about doing this festival I don't know if they asked me the question or what, but, yeah. and he said, oh, that's been canceled. And I said, oh, wow. Anyway, so we started going there, and uh, at some point, we really hit some standstill traffic, and uh, I just assumed there was an accident ahead and made my way to a phone booth. <laughs> you know, phone booth, this is where there were no cell phones, right? So yeah. um, a phone booth, and made some calls and I found out don't don't go there, go here and it was some motel in Bethel, New York and we headed up and now I'm starting to get nervous, you know, this is this sounds you know, this is traffic having to do with something that I'm about to do and I get to the motel and I knew then I was finished, <laughs> you know. I, all I wanted to do was get out of there. Yeah, I had me and my guitar and my mom. And that was it. We're in a car. I go into the, the front door of the motel, and there's Sly Stone. I had never met a famous person. Well, wow. I had met Rod Stewart, but he wasn't famous for Rod Stewart. He was still in a group. <laughs> it was like the, the small faces. Anyway, so, you know, I had met him, but, you know, he wasn't a big deal yet. And here I was in seeing Sly Stone, and then I look over, there's a circle of press with microphones, and there's Janice Joplin, bigger than life, drinking her Southern Comfort, and I'm thinking, I've got to get out of here. This this is way, way bigger than anything I was thinking. Uh, I thought it was going to be like this 
I don't know, family pastoral events with picnic blankets and just looked way more dangerous, <laughs> highly visible than I had ever. I had never done anything that big or even slightly or half size or quarter size. So, and I'm sensing this. And at that point, somebody came up and said, Melanie, Melanie, go to the helicopter. And I'm the helicopter and I'm just running, you know, and he's running and my mom is running. (laughs) We get to the door of the helicopter and they said, who is she? Oh, it's my mom. And he said, oh, no, no, mom. Sorry, mom. Bye, mom. And I got in the helicopter by myself and waved goodbye to my mother. And I didn't see her again for the rest of the day. There's that nerve wracking moment where you. Oh, there was. It gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) It gets way worse. As I'm flying over that field and I'm looking at this, whatever, unidentifiable stuff down below. And it was this colorful kind of something. And I, I said to the pilot, what is that? And he said, it's people. I said, no, no. I mean, it's miles, that stuff there. You know, that's people. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I can't be people. And he's then there's the stage. And he pointed to this, you know, this football-sized thing. <laughs> and I thought, I had never been on anything bigger than a, you know, a little folk stage, you know, and there was this thing and I landed and somebody ushered me to a a little tent with a dirt floor in a box. And that is where I spent most of my days. So people have these fantasy experiences that I must have had, you know, hanging out with Janis Joplin and all these great people and tell us some of those things that happened when you were hanging out with (laughs) I was in my tent terrified and um, my one cuddly Woodstock moment was when I guess Joan Baez who was in the higher echelon tent I might say it was higher echelon it seemed like there was this other big place I didn't venture near it it had amenities, I guess, and uh, she heard me coughing. I had developed this deep bronchial cough from fear, <laughs> and I I was coughing and coughing, and um, she sent over her assistant with a pot of tea and honey, and I see this girl with a little flowered band around her head, and she said, Joan heard you coughing and thought you might like this, and I said, Joan? You mean Joan Baez? This is like my hero, you know. So there she was, you know, offering me tea, but I never met her there. And I never met anyone. I I briefly got a look at Tim Harden, who was across the way. And I heard that he had a moment of panic and tried to bolt. (laughs) But I I never actually um, got to meet anyone there except the sort of Hell's Angels guard who I wandered a little too far from my tent and they wanted to put me out in the field. And um, as much as I wanted not to do it, I guess something in me told me, don't let him put me out in the field. So I told him, I sang him a few lines of Beautiful People, which was the only song that maybe a half a percent of that crowd had heard. 
And they certainly didn't identify it with a name or a face as I had zero visibility here at that time. So that was what I did. I sang a little bit of Beautiful People and he said, oh, okay. (laughs) And he let me back in my tent. I didn't have an artist pass. That's the other thing. I got there in such a, a hurry and the whole thing was so chaotic that they didn't give me my backstage pass. So, you know, I didn't have any real ID. I never wandered too far from the tent. I waited all day, the entire day. I assumed when I landed on the field, Richie Havens was singing. And I assumed that they rushed me there so that I would go on after Richie Havens. And that didn't happen. You know, uh, somebody else went on and somebody else went on. And every once in a while, someone would come in and say, you're next. And then I wasn't, you know, or I would hear somebody singing or playing and I knew it wasn't me. So I wasn't next. And so this went on all day and it had started to rain. And I remember the MC saying something about, you know, lighting the candles that Hog Farm was passing out and keeping the rain from doing something. And I, I mean, I, I don't have it memorized. I just remember the gist of it. And I'm thinking it's raining and they're all going to go home, right? I mean, they're not going to stay out in the rain. So it's raining and I'm probably going to be, this is my reprieve. <laughs> this won't happen. I won't. God answered my prayers. And I'll be home. I'll go back to England and I'll do everything the way I was doing it. I'll be just fine. And right at that moment, it was interrupted that minute of feeling like I was saved. And they said, You're on next. And this time it was for real. It was after Ravi Shankar. And I went on stage. Let's welcome a special guest, a very nice young lady, a new face. Let's welcome Melanie. Walking through life, I would never fall If I could be close to it all and all If I could be close to it all If I had my dream, it would not fall down If I could live high on the ground The sound of high is a good one to many around when they want to be close to it all and i wanna be close to it all and all i gotta be close to it all a village sugar takers Medicine Avenue being dream makers They try to escape from it all But instead they build walls that soar But they want to be close to it all If I had my dream, I would fill a hall And tell all the people, tear down the wall That keeps them from being a part of it all Cause they gotta be close to it all The village sugar take 
it all, but instead they built walls that's all, but they wanna be close to it all. There's just one more thing that I wanna say. Everyone's got their own special way that keeps them from getting too close to the day. Accept and be part of it all and all and everyone. You gotta tear down your own little wall that keeps you from being a part of it all. It was, uh, it was more phenomenal probably for me than most anyone else there because, first of all, I was unknown for the most part. And second of all, I actually left my body and I wasn't doing drugs. I was a purist. I was a vegetarian. I was very cleansed and I was going to be perfect. <laughs> that didn't happen, but I tried. I just, just how didn't I left my body. I wasn't in my body for a, a period of time. I watched myself sit. I watched myself put the guitar on. I watched myself do all these things. I couldn't hear anything. It was silent. And I just hovered above myself watching. And I returned. I returned and all 500,000 people got to see me return, got to see me have an out-of-body experience. They didn't know that that was happening, maybe, or maybe they did. <laughs> but it was, I resonated with a group of people who had never seen me before, had no, they weren't preconditioned to knowing a particular song. And there I was being um, received in this unbelievable response. And um, I did a set. And I was back with my body by one of the songs, I'm not sure which one. And there I was singing in front of all these people, feeling totally okay. In fact, I felt so totally okay that I sang a song that I had just written and hardly remembered the words. And it was called Birthday of the Sun. And in fact, I don't think I sang it very much after that, but I just pulled it out of my exuberance you know, of feeling like I was okay and they weren't going to throw stones at me or you know, yell, get off the stage or anything. You know, in these moments, I just picked up this a song I had just written called Birthday of the Sun because it was raining. I thought it was somehow relevant. So I, I sang that for the first time at Woodstock. And uh, that's how crazy I was, you know, <laughs> to help out, try out a song that you've never done before in front of 500,000 people. And people still to this day, especially the ones who have the uh, Woodstock 2 recording or something, they'll do Birthday of the Sun. And I said, what a strange request. <laughs> Birthday of the Sun. 
looking back at, at Woodstock that inspired you for Lay Down Candles in the Rain then? Yeah, actually I had the um, the anthemic chorus in my head as I was leaving Woodstock and the words just popped out, you know, it was oh yeah, it was amazing really I mean, I have nothing but the most positive, powerful memories of the whole event, I mean, a lot of people in their reality it was, you know, the beginning of the end, and it was political, and it was all about getting stoned and all that stuff. But for me, this was the near renaissance on Earth.
another hit that you're known over here in Europe for is uh, Ruby Tuesday. Yes, that was really huge there, especially. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think it ever got released here as a single. But, um, yeah, I mean, usually on the posters, especially when I did Germany, it was Melanie Ruby Tuesday, you know. And, uh, yeah, in fact, when I sang it here, I was not like the darling of the um, underground press. I don't know what happened. I think I was politically wrong. I don't mean in politics, but politically in the music industry, not with the right group of people. I wasn't, well, I'm not going to get into who, but I wasn't in with that circle of um, darlings of the Rolling Stone. Definitely not. They were sort of um, waging a little war against Melanie. And it was, uh, I was so I was too pretty. I was too cute, you know, and how could I, I mean, they hardly ever mentioned that I wrote a song. It was mostly, I was just the cute bit of Woodstock fluff and it'll go, it'll pass. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> so here it wasn't um, a, a big hit and I was doing a, a concert somewhere in one of the hard rock cities of the U S and the reviewer was just hellbent and tearing me apart. And she said, oh, yeah, a brand new key, how, you know, inane and silly and everything. And then, of course, that other song she did was Ruby Tuesday. What a stupid song that is. And <laughs> it was the, yeah. I guess she didn't know the Rolling Stones wrote it. But at that point, she had, yeah. that was vindication for me. <laughs>
Stock, you had hits, but then you had your, one of your biggest hits, brand new key, and um, the, the inspiration was um, going past the McDonald's. I've heard. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> like I said, I was a purist. I was looking for ways of living a healthy, full, authentic life, and I was a vegetarian. I was a fruitarian. I was even a breatharian, which is I fasted for 40 days on nothing but distilled water, or, or it might have been less. I'm not remembering how many days. It was a really long fast on nothing but water, and it was distilled water just in case you might get a few nutrients out of the water. It was Dr. Bernard Jensen's health ranch in Escondido, California, because I kept getting I would get sick being doing these different health regimes. Somehow I was getting sick. I could have been cleansing or detoxing or whatever. So I went on this fast with Dr. Jensen. And when he said it was time to break the fast, I met with him and he told me exactly how to do it with um, partially cooked grated carrot and partially cooked grated zucchini and maybe a spoon of juice very, very, very gradually should I introduce food into my system. So I did that for a few days there. I went home and he said my perfect diet should occur to me because I was so cleansed and in touch with myself and what I needed and how I felt about what I put in my system. And I was uh, going to an early morning um, flea market it was the days of the dealers would go at four in the morning and buy up all the good stuff. And then the public would wander in. Well, I went disguised as a dealer and it was still dark and I'm 
my flashlight and I'm looking at the tables and I have my stash of good stuff that I got. And I was on my way home and I always had my little travel guitar in the car and I was passing a uh, McDonald's and realized I was very hungry. And the smell of that, I turned back and went into the McDonald's and had the whole works. Dr. Jensen said, what my perfect diet is will occur to me. <laughs> this is after not eating meat for a very long time. And I don't know if you could really call McDonald's meat, but it was, I just did it. I ate the burger and the fries and the the fiberglass milkshake, the, the works, you know, and I no sooner finished the last bite of hamburger and that song popped into my head. And I don't know if it was the the senses recalling a, a certain scent in the air or whatever, learning how to ride my bike when I was little. And this whole memory of senses came back to me and I, I wrote brand new key just like that in the car. Amazing. It is pretty weird. I mean, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, I've tried to eat a hamburger again. <laughs> maybe, maybe it'll happen again, but it didn't. I rode my bicycle past your window last night. I roller skated to your door at daylight. It almost seems like you're avoiding me. I'm okay. Another track that people associate you with and has been one of the songs that you know many, many artists have covered, look what they've done to my song, Ma, but to have an artist of the stature of Ray Charles do it, but also add his own sort of spin on it as well and provide a bit of him rather than just doing it exactly 
the way you've done must have been pretty special. Oh, Ray Charles. Oh, my gosh. It was, yeah, a lot of people have re-recorded and recorded that song. But when he, first time he did it was on um, a television show with Barbara Streisand. And then he recorded it, or maybe he had the record out, but it was the top R&B hit. And when I heard his version, I was, for the first time ever, I felt like I'm a songwriter. I am a songwriter. I can put that on my resume. (laughs) I'm a songwriter. You know, this is somehow until I heard someone else do my song and really interpret it. I didn't really feel like I was a songwriter. I felt like I was a person who wrote songs for themselves, which seemed different than being a songwriter in the, you know, the realms of Irving Berlin or something, you know, that to me, a songwriter was, was someone who was the funny looking person who was in the back room, you know, writing the songs and the pretty person was the person who sang it. And for me, uh, just that realization that I wrote this song that Ray Charles can sing and he liked it enough to sing it. And that was a moment that was, an absolute moment in my life. Hello, Mama. Hello, Mama. It's me. How you feeling, Mama? Fine, thank you. I'm glad about that, Mama. Listen, I got something I want to talk to you about, Mama, if you don't mind. And I ain't mad. No, no. Look what they done to my song. Oh, Mama. Look what they done to my song, Mama. Oh, Lord, Mama. Just about to go insane. Oh, 
Well, I'm going crazy, Mama. That's all right. I ain't worried about nothing. I'm going to do just like you taught me, Mama. You know that? Oh, yes, I will. You were so prolific in the 1970s, especially in the early 70s, and another big hit for you was uh, Bitter Bad. It feels like you've got a bit of humour in that song. Yeah, yeah. I um, didn't let my humour come out too much because I I guess um, I was not told, but there was an implication that the funny women were just the fat girlfriend in the you know, the movie. So if you were um, too funny, people wouldn't take you seriously or or men, since it was a man's industry and it still pretty much is, that men don't like women who are funny. <laughs> so they may be laughing at them, you know, God forbid. So I just sort of repressed that in myself and it would come out in songs. I think that a lot of uh, my humor was in songs and bitter bad for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll put your first and last name in my rock and roll song. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> great albums is uh, Photograph. It's really, really well revered now. 
the first song off that album in terms of a single cyclone. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a, a really sort of special song. Yeah. What was the sort of spark of inspiration for, for that song in particular? Well, uh, for that particular song, I was, let me set the stage <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, um, I had been pregnant. I felt like I was pregnant for an eternity and wasn't as visible. It wasn't that I was, I, I still had, you know, the memory of yeah. hits were fresh. You know, it wasn't like I was coming back. But, but of course, when I did release that album, it was all about she's come back and she's an adult. And now she is. And I think somehow being on Atlantic Records, I was now with the politically in people, you know, so it was yeah. now I was okay to talk about. And now I was an adult and I changed and now I have relevance that I didn't have before. And here she is with a photograph album. And I was getting this PR and this little buzz before I even finished the album because Atlantic was, you know, very, very good positioning with PR and stuff. So I realized that, you know, this was a new start and hopefully, you know, that I wouldn't be uh, put on the uh, underground shit list. (laughs) Anyway, so I felt like I was free, you know, to write anything I wanted to write. So I had a song in my head and I sang it for um, Peter, of course, my husband, producer, and David Page, who was uh, working on the arrangements for um, this album. And I said, I have the song. It's really good. I don't, I don't know where it's going. You know, I just, I feel like it's about some explosive event. And, and David Page said, just do some rock and roll words. Hmm. So I said, what is that? I wonder what that means. And I realized it's kind of like, I guess some of Bruce Springsteen's lyrics. Hmm. <laughs> so, don't take me wrong, but um, they don't actually go anywhere. They imply a lot, but don't exactly sum up anything you know you're not going to learn how to live your life reading those lyrics but you can get a lot of impetus and inspiration for doing something so I took that bit of information and just wrote those words I wrote rock and roll words and that's what it was it was a song that was started by a very introvert Melanie and ended with yeah (laughs)
those lyrics um, create imagery, a, a bit like the title track "Photograph" as well. That's there's many so- songs off that album that I could have chosen, and the title track "Photograph" is another one of those standout photograph. moments. From yeah, now "Photograph" is different. "Photograph" I would have uh, that was really thought about. You know, that was that I had. You know, it's amazing when you when you look at photos how. Sometimes I, I almost it, it hurts, you know, to yeah. to relive those memories when you look at a photograph. And I look at my photograph when I was in high school, and this was from real experiences. You know, just looking back at, wow, nobody liked me. You know, I, I don't know how this happened exactly. I moved a lot, didn't make a lot of friends. I was kind of an introvert, so introverts, especially pretty ones, can be taken as aloof and stuck up and who does she think she is? But I didn't know this, you know, I was just thinking, I'm just, you know, a poor loser, you know, <laughs> just, um, I don't mean a poor loser. I mean, a just a, a lost person who's yeah. not got friends. So when I, when I look at those photographs of me in high school and was I happy in it, you know, and little reason, lots of rhyme. I think that's one of, the most beautiful songs I've ever written. Anyway, yeah, the whole experience of the photograph album was this was going to be a new beginning, you know, and I was going to be able to express myself and I wouldn't have to worry that Rolling Stone was going to put me down instantly for whatever I was doing. And and actually didn't I didn't even care, you know, because I felt like I knew who I was a lot more than I had ever known before and I think it had to do with having children too puts a little perspective on life you know you see well you know we're all born and we're all going to die you know so what are we fretting about why aren't we kinder to each other and that sort of thing so in the thinking of that photograph came to me Uh, it was my one of my best albums ever I mean it had Mm. anyway the whole bizarre thing is that as soon as it came out, Ahmet Erdogan went off to Turkey. He was the president of Atlantic. And I was told to deal with some other guy who didn't seem to appreciate the photograph album and wanted to know what I was doing next. And I went, what do you mean next? We haven't barely released it. Yeah. You know, I, um, it got this rave review in the New York Times and then it was just pulled off the shelf. And it is a mystery till this very day, which makes me wonder if there isn't a deep, dark agenda out oh. there. It had nothing to do with how good the songs were. The album was pulled off the shelf. It was get her off the street. And there was this, you know, the whole push was uh, a new drug, disco, dance, fever, music. And it was like, oh, yeah, next, next. And and it was as if anything with relevance and meaning, any kind of deeper meaning for world harmony was being made fun of. Mm. Everything to do with Woodstock was made fun of. In fact, I did uh, several photo shoots and they didn't want me to look too folky. You know, they, they wanted the new look. So I just looked the way I looked and, you know, it's the way the mm. photograph looks afterward that, you know, they put it out or they don't. Anyway, yes, they had several of the top photographs 
uh, people do me, and it was a whole new Melanie. And I mean, I was the same as I always was, and I wasn't going to do anything different. But the yeah, presentation was going to be different. But there was something very mysterious. But fortunately, it did come out in Europe yeah. before they pulled the plug. I mean, they did sort of did a half-ass re-release a few years ago of um, the photograph album, which was remastered by someone who was very good. And it sounded great, and I was very happy. But again, they, they just put it out as a... With, because popular demands, you know, people were insisting that we want this album. So it came out, again, with a token. Limited. We need a vinyl reissue, don't we? Oh, yes. Anyway, I am seeking my rights back because I don't know if people do or don't know, but all of my copyrights are being claimed by people who don't own them. I own all my copyrights. Somehow I'm not receiving compensation for it. So, yeah, as, as I'm fond of saying, I earn a lot of money. I just don't happen to receive any of it. Did you love 
The next song is If My Heart Should Lose Its Way. And by the mid-90s, were you um, releasing your own material on, on your own label then by that time? Yeah, I think after uh, the whole experiences with corporate record companies, I decided I need my own label. <laughs> so yeah. It was Neighborhood Records, and Peter and I had our own label he was the the record man you know he he dealt with all those distributors and rack jobbers and all those people that you have to deal with and i you know was more in the creative realms of decorating the office actually our office ironically is in um the golden western building which became trump tower (laughs) (laughs) so i was on the i think 32nd floor of um that building, in fact, I don't know what they did, but I, I wallpapered <laughs> there are a corporate office, you know, and I have had Paisley wallpaper and um, made one of the rooms where we could uh, make food and, and have a little kitchen. And uh, it was it was cute while it lasted. <laughs> Again, the forces that I had no idea. Powerful forces were against us. Your songwriting was still really strong in that period. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, definitely. If My Heart Should Lose Its Way, was that writing from a personal perspective? Um, I heard, you know, sometimes songs come from, the inspiration comes from one one little pearl of a, of a line, you know, and you'll just, and it'll just roll around my head. And If My Heart Should Lose Its Way, was going to be seven different songs, you know, yeah. and it, it finally became the song it was. It took what it took to to get the song across, and um, we were happy to have it. Be Bo and I. Bo is my son, and yeah. he um, he actually uh, did it as a duo. If my heart should lose its way. Keep a light on at your window If you and I should have to part Your light will be my star If my heart should 
lose its way. If my heart should lose its way, keep a dream under your pillow. We'll meet again at break of day. That dream is where I'll go. If my heart should lose its way, summon the jets and
you mentioned your son Bo, the song "Smile." I, th- I think that was um, yeah. Was, was that his his music and your lyrics? Yes, he um, came up with this cool groove. I loved it so much. That odd time signature, and um, I definitely wanted to write words. Nine Eleven had happened, and we really didn't write much. I didn't write too much. You know, it was kind of a a strange, numb period of time creatively. And a smile was my first reaction after that event. It's odd that a tragedy inspires a song called Smile, but that's the way it is. In fact, I did that song at a a club in um, New York, and I was in the middle of the song, and I heard a slight little disturbance at the back of the room, and I didn't, you know, didn't know what it was and nothing seemed terrible. So I proceeded and I got a letter saying she had been at this place and I started singing this song and she had been a, a frontline worker at the Twin Towers. I mean, she, she described vivid, horrible things that she had witnessed. And she told me that for all these months, she couldn't feel anything. She couldn't cry and she couldn't really function well. And everything was stopped. And she said, when I started to sing that song, it was like I had opened up a well and she just broke into tears and everything just came out. So she was thanking me for being able to contact that part of her that was closed up and and be able to open it again. So that was odd because I might have said something about this is our first musical response after the Twin Towers, but there's nothing that references anything about the Twin Towers or 9-11 or anything in that song. So she somehow got significance of us doing a song like that in response. Take no prisoner, leave no trace, make no waves. Freedom's illusion, home of the rich and the slave. Cynics and critics making the news, creating the scene. Destiny lies in the fools who refuse to give up on a dream. And I love people who smile. Everybody smile, we'll have a hometown all over the world. And I, 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 I love people who smile. Everybody smile, we'll have a hometown all over the world. Wear it well, and it could appear in your heart. Indelibly printed on someone a world apart. Lights in the window all through our darkest day. Human kindness outdistances being afraid. And I, 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 I love people who
the Americans smile. They smile for nothing. I think it's to disarm you or something. No, 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 I, I don't think so. You see, I smile because, well, somebody looks at me on the street, say we're passing by, and, and they look at me and they smile, and I smile back. And for that brief moment, we're all in this together. And for that tiny moment, we make some kind of connection. And for that brief moment, I know I'm part of a whole, and they're part of it with me. And the smile is, is a manifestation of that connection, and I know we're connected. one of your more recent releases but actually it's um an archive recording of um you you at the met in uh, new york in 1974 the, the song kansas and um that was a project where the original recordings were found and and sort of recovered and and you've been able to to release that out there yeah this is amazing as, as i said you know i own all my recordings and my copyrights but again through I don't know, some kind of legalese and somebody acquiring something and Peter's not here to yeah. help me out with it. I'm not receiving anything. So uh, my sister had stored these recordings that were kind of abandoned when my mother's house was sold. These master tapes were in her garage 
and my sister took them up to her barn. We kind of lost track of them. They were recovered and restored, and there's massive amounts of material that I, I really don't believe I had time to do anything other than record with the amount of, of music that I have recorded and written. It, it's just incredible. I, I have so much um, that's archived and never been heard, never been released. And um, I, I'd really love to get it all out there. But The Met is the latest, and it's available on CD. And I think she has it on download. It's through my website, of course. But there's uh, the woman who's helping me. With, uh, because this is a human rights violation. You know, it's Article 27 of the human rights about artists receiving compensation for their creation, no matter what. She is working on this um, Article 27 music. So it's released through that label. It would just be such a great message to leave behind to help artists in the future if we can get this straightened out, you know, because it's so wrong. <laughs> it's so wrong that, you know, it's, it's obviously wrong, but there's a lot of things that are obviously wrong and they're still occurring. So, you know, we, we work to, to end that kind of thing. So that's what I'm doing. So the people behind that release are, are basically taking forward that Article 27 music rights project. So it's, it's all for a good cause yes, as well. Yes, it would be great if all of you out there purchase one of those and um, we will move forward.
To close, Melanie, we have I Tried to Die Young. Is this a song about still being here and still being as vital as ever in, in the face yeah, of... Yeah, I'm, I'm so proud of that song. Thank you for having that as one of them. I, I talked to one songwriter, I won't tell you his name, but he said, that's one song I really wish I wrote. <laughs> I think it, I, I think it came from that ageism of the music business. You know, at one point... I would go and play something I wrote to somebody in a record company and they'd say, yeah. And we just signed a completely uh, non-sequitur response. We just signed a 12-year-old girl who sounds just like Janis Joplin. And here's her. And, and I think, what in the hell? You know, what is this about? You know, and, and it seemed like every time I'd hear it, the age was getting younger and younger. So that thing of ageism was in my thinking and I tried to die young was my cheeky response. So, Melanie, you've also been nominated for a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Folk Alliance International. They're quite a prestigious organisation responsible for supporting uh, the folk music uh, genre more broadly as well. So that's, that must be quite um, yeah. quite an honour. It was amazing. And I just found out about it a few days ago. There are two categories, uh, um, Lifetime Achievement Award winners, you know, nominees um, in the living category. <laughs> and then there are the legacy artists. And I was very happy to see my name in the living category. And uh, if anybody is a member, I think you have to be a member to vote, but please do. Um, that would be just a cherry on the top. Be really great. Well, that's fantastic. We, we do have artists, quite a number of artists who do listen to the podcast, so hopefully some, some are there. Yeah. Your live stream concert on the 30th of January. And is that a mix of many of your classic songs, but some? I hope there's some a bit of new material as well? Yes. I always like to incorporate you know, definite things that people know me from, but I don't, um, it's not going to be an hour and a half of 1969 or anything. Yeah. I, I have to sing my new songs and um, I have a feeling they might be a bit controversial, but hey, what can you do? The artists should be um, free of all of that assigning political meaning to something. I, I'm not yeah. a political person. If anything, I'm a libertarian I don't think government should be in our faces. So people can reach you in quite a number of ways. There's your website, melaniesafka.com. Uh, they can get stuff on Bandcamp. You're on Twitter, Facebook. And I think you've got a, a Patreon page now as well. Yes. Oh, yes. That's a, a new thing. Actually, you could be a supporter for uh, a dollar. It, I think it's the nickel song right. here. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, at first I had a lot of back off on it. Oh, I don't know, it's sort of like begging in the streets or something. But it really isn't. I mean, the, the, the whole structure of the way the control of the industry is, is independent people have to have yeah. to have the support of the people who like their music. So it's as simple as that. And it doesn't have to break the bank or anything. You can be a supporter on several tiers and you get different things for different tiers. So there's an exchange going on and Patreon. It's a good platform so far. So if you want to check that out, that would be greatly appreciated. Hmm. 
And I hope I'll see everybody at the live stream show. Melanie, um, what an honour and privilege it's been to talk to you, your legacy in music and and still making great music and still overcoming the the barriers of not being able to tour at the minute with um, the live streams and and Patreon, etc. Thank you so much. Okay, super. All right, then, bye-bye. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye.
he'll still the same. Then you'll never kill me when try to die young. Why did I try? But the voice deep inside would not let me succumb. And I laugh, I laugh at the things I've done when I tried to die. Laugh at the things that I've done when I tried to die young. With the things that I've done when I tried to die young Now the voice deep inside would not let me support I with the things that I've done when I tried to die young Tried to die young Now the voice deep inside would not let me support with the things that I've done when I tried to die young I tried to die young Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.